So uh, about a year and a half ago, I, um, uh, I found myself in a really interesting situation. You know, I, I'm a pastor, and I just hit this kind of low point. You know, it was about a year and a half ago, and I found myself struggling really with what I would just call a kind of low-grade depression. I was struggling with feeling cynical about spirituality and my faith. And you can imagine that produces some tensions in the life of a guy who's given his life to help other people walk those things out. And uh, I was on the brink of, of preparing to go on a trip to India where I was going to be training church planners and pastors. And, you know, I was just struggling. I was struggling in some places. And those that were closest to me knew that I was walking through this and they were praying for me, supporting me well. And I remember one day one of our elders, uh, Todd Rodewald, he and his wife, Stacy, reached out to me and they said, hey, we just want to take you to lunch and, and love on you some. And I was so grateful. And so we went uh, we went to this restaurant in the Gulch. I remember sitting down and talking with them. And I'm just, in, I'm, I'm like really anticipating this great conversation because, man, I know they love me. I know they're there to support me and encourage me. So I'm like, man, I'm going to get like a shot in the arm, like some encouragement from uh, one of our elders today. And and so we sit down and they ask me how I'm doing and I kind of tell them the story of what I'm feeling and what I've been experiencing and the strain that it's been on me. And, um, and they kind of already knew a lot of that. And then Stacy kind of says, hey, you know, we wanted to have you to lunch today because we were, I was praying for you the other day and the Lord gave me this very specific passage for you. And I went, yes, here it is. This is that, <laughs> this is that moment of encouragement that I'm waiting for. And I'm like, hey, what was it? She says, so the passage as I was praying for you, it came in so clear. And it was Luke 22, is these, the, basically the passage that we're going to be looking at today. And, and you know, we'll look at it more deeply. But basically what it says is Jesus looks at, at Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And I remember when Stacy said that to me, I'm like, what? Like, this is the word? And it was like literally like single solitary tear out of each eye, like going down, going down my face. And I'm just like, how? this is not what I was expecting. Satan has asked to sift me like wheat? You know, the only story I can think of outside of the one she's referencing is the story of Job, which if you've ever read that, like, I mean, my paraphrase at the very beginning, Satan shows up to God and says, hey, I want to sift Job. And Job proceeds to lose his family, his house, his kids, his wife, his wellness, everything but his life. And I'm going, man, what does God have in store for me? I started to get kind of nervous about it. And we we had a great talk after she said that for me really well. I felt pretty good. But man, in that moment, when she shared that verse with me, I just had this feeling of like, what? Not what I was expecting. And the feeling that I was feeling in that moment is probably pretty similar to what the Apostle Peter was feeling in the moment that we're going to look at when Jesus says this to him. You know, just so you understand what's happening in the story in Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, it is Jesus gathering with his closest friends. It's the last meal he's going to enjoy before he suffers and dies, before he's executed. And he's together with his closest friends. And chapter 22, verse 15, Jesus says this to his followers. He says, I have eagerly desired to share this meal with you. Like Jesus is full of eager anticipation for what this meal will be. And he's sharing that with his 12 closest friends. And so you know they're feeling it as well. You get to verse 18 and Jesus, he takes this cup uh, of wine and he holds it out and says, hey, divide this among yourself. He says, I will not drink of this cup of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. Man, you can't speak clearer language to a Jewish man who has messianic expectations about a coming kingdom of God. These guys are sitting around the table and they're going, he's talking about the messianic feast. He's talking about Isaiah 25. Go go read it. You'll understand. Like They had this expectation when the kingdom of God comes that, that God's kingdom will be set up and there will be this magnificent feast where all of the righteous will be gathered and get to celebrate with God. And they're going, he's doing it. Like This is it. This is what he's talking about. And so then, of course, out of that, 
comes this conversation where they start talking about, hey, I wonder who's going to be the greatest, you know? When, when this thing happens, who's going to have the seat of honor at the banquet table, you know? And Jesus kind of sets them straight. He says, no, guys, when you lead in the kingdom, you got to be a servant. But then he affirms what their expectations are. He says, hey, I'm about to convey on you a kingdom, and you will sit on 12 thrones, and you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. He's, he is affirming, he's confirming, like, their messianic expectations of what the kingdom will be like. And man, their excitement is like fever pitch at this point. I mean, they're sitting around the table with him and they're like, this thing is about to happen. And then it's at that moment <laughs> that Jesus turns to Peter and he says these words. Look at verse 31 with me, Luke 22. Jesus says, Simon, Simon. You can really stop right there. I mean, already you feel the change in tone. You know, Jesus doesn't refer to Peter by his affectionate nickname. Peter was just his nickname. You know, he was called Petros. It means the rock. Like, that was his nickname, the rock. Jesus doesn't say, hey, rock. No, Jesus says, Simon, Simon. He calls him by the name that Peter would have gone by as a child. It's kind of like that moment when I try to get my kids' attention, and I don't call them by their nickname. I don't call them just by their first name, but I say their first, middle, and last name, and they know I'm trying to get their attention. This is what Jesus is doing. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Now, some of your Bibles might just say, sift you as wheat. The Greek word there is actually plural. What Jesus is saying is he's looking at Simon, but he's talking about all of his followers. He says, hey, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of y'all. He's asked to sift all of you as wheat. And then he says, but I have prayed for you, Simon. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. You know, this is, this is the moment that, that Jesus speaks into, and Peter was probably feeling what I felt sitting at the table, just like sitting at a table, just like he was across from Todd and Stacy. Peter's feeling this like, wait, ultimate buzzkill, Jesus. Like, what just happened to all this talk of kingdom? Now you're talking about me being sifted. And I think some of the feeling that I had at the table and probably some of the feeling that Peter has and probably the feeling that some of us have when we think about this idea of being sifted, I think we feel that because so often we confuse or we equate sifting with suffering. We just assume that sifting automatically means suffering, but I'm not sure that's exactly what sifting always is. Now to understand what sifting actually is, you've kinda gotta have, you've gotta be able to enter into the metaphor that Jesus is using. Most of us aren't farmers. He says, I'm gonna sift you like wheat. Most of us don't ever sift wheat. However, most of us have seen something like this before, you know, maybe you haven't and you're going, what is that? You know, this is a, this is one of those, <laughs> whew, it's close. This is one of those little sifters, you know, that kids use at the beach. So if you've ever been to the beach with a kid, you know, they'll go down and they'll scoop up a bunch of sand and they'll put it in here and they'll shake it. And everything that's not worth keeping, the sand, falls through the sieve and everything that's worth keeping, the shell they're looking for, the little crab they're trying to catch, whatever, stays on top. And guys, this is the way a wheat sieve works as well. You put the wheat berries in the top and you shake it and the chaff, that worthless papery little coating that's around it falls through and the good stuff, that which is worth keeping stays on the top. And this is what Jesus is describing. He's going, hey, Simon Peter, he says, Satan wants to put you in here and he's trying to sift you. And the question we have to ask is what is it that he's trying to sift out of Peter? What is it that Satan wants to sift? And we find our answer in how Jesus encourages Peter. He says, hey, Satan is asked to sift you. And he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith won't fail. You see, what Satan was trying to do is sift out Peter's faith. Now, honestly, we hear that phrase and we go, wait, Jesus, that feels kind of insensitive. <laughs> you just told Peter that Satan asked 
first if he could be sifted. And that you didn't say no, you're just going to pray for his faith? Like, Jesus, why not say, hey, but I've pulled you out of the sieve, Peter. I've got you out of that thing. Why are you just praying? It feels like that moment where the friends show up to Jesus and their friend is, is a paralytic, like he can't walk. And they bring him to Jesus and Jesus looks at him and the first thing he says is, son, your sins are forgiven. And everyone's going, dude, he, he wants to walk. Like his legs don't work. Why are you talking about these spiritual things when he physically cannot walk? But guys, the reason that Jesus doesn't just tell Satan no, the reason he doesn't just pull Peter out of the sieve, the reason he forgives someone's sins before he heals them physically is because Jesus understood then and he understands now that there is something that is worth far more than our physical comfort. There is something that is worth far more than gold. Something that is worth more than anything else that this life has to offer, and that something is our faith. Our faith, you know, that thing that Hebrews chapter 11 will describe as, as confidence in what we hope for. Absolute certainty about that which we do not see. That this, this, this trust, this absolute confidence that Jesus is able to free you, to save you from judgment, from wrath, from sin, from death, from guilt, from shame. This trust that even though I can't see him right now, I know he's doing it in my deepest fiber. I believe it. That is our faith. Why is it so important? And, and why do I think just from this verse that Jesus thinks it's the most important thing in us as his followers? Well, it's not just this verse. You know, you keep reading in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the writer will say, hey, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Whew. Isn't that what we long for as Christ's followers, is to live lives that please God? And yet the Bible tells us without faith, that is impossible. Mm. You know, Peter himself, the guy who has this said to him years later, he would write this letter, and he writes a letter to a group of Christians who were going under some pretty immense amount of trials and suffering. I mean, they're being arrested, they're being persecuted. And, uh, and listen to the words he's going to say to them. This is 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen, starting in verse 7, Peter says, These have come, he's saying these trials, these things that you're going through, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes when it's refined by fire, that your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He says, he says though, uh, though you have not seen him, though you've not seen Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. And then he says, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And you see here all those descriptions of what faith does for us. It's that thing that even though we can't see what Jesus is doing in the midst of hardship, we are filled with inexpressible joy. It's that thing that even though we're going through the hardest things in life, we know that we are receiving the goal of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Guys, this is our faith. And Jesus says, it's the most important thing. It's what I'm going to pray for you to hold on to, Peter. Because what Satan longs to do is sift out Peter's faith. So you see, sifting, sifting by nature is not just about suffering. Ultimately, it is about the attempt of Satan to try to remove our faith from us, to try to get us to lose a grip on our faith. Any attempt of Satan to let go of faith in Jesus can be considered a sifting. You know, I love the way John Piper says this in one of his teachings. This is a quote that he says. He says, The sifting of Simon Peter and the others is Satan's effort to destroy their faith. And this remains his main goal today. Listen to this. 
It is relatively unimportant to Satan whether or not we are healthy or sick, whether we are rich or poor. What Satan wants is to sift out our faith, and if he can do it by suffering, then he'll try that. If he can do it through wealth, then he'll try that. He will try whatever means he can to try to shake us free of our absolute trust in Jesus to do the thing that he said he's going to do, which is to renew all things and give us eternal life. Mm. Man, that's what he wants to shake from us, guys. You know, here's what's real important is that for Peter, when we look at this story, the sifting here for Peter wasn't necessarily the type of personal suffering that we would imagine it was. You know, Jesus is basically preparing Peter for this moment when he's about to betray Jesus. He goes on to tell him that in the next few verses. You know, for Peter, the sifting wasn't so much the suffering he was going to go through. It was that his perception of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah was about to be shaken. Now, don't hear me wrong here. Jesus, I mean, Peter had a very clear view that Jesus as Messiah would set up a kingdom. He knew that would happen, and that is true. But what he didn't understand was that the Messiah first had to suffer before he entered his glory. Jesus says that word for word in Luke 24. The Messiah has to suffer first and then enter his glory. And this idea of a suffering Messiah was going to shake Peter to his core because he did not have a grip on it. And so the moment Jesus just knew, he said, man, it's like, Peter, the moment you see me suffering, the faith in you is going to start being sifted and shaken. And guys, isn't this true that sometimes, sometimes our understanding of a Messiah that suffers leaves us being shaken? We don't know what to do with the idea of hardship and suffering before glory. And it begins to sift us. Peter wasn't just being sifted in his understanding of Jesus as Messiah, but I think he's also being sifted in his, his tendency to care more about what other people think about him. You know, remember, he finds himself in the courtyard and and he's asked three times whether or not he follows Jesus. And it's his fear of people, the fear of what might happen to his life that causes him to deny Jesus three different times. So you see, the sifting for Peter was misunderstanding suffering before glory, misunderstanding and, and having more care about what people think about him than what Jesus thinks about him. And I think all of us can relate to that. But, you know, we've been in this series now. This is the third sermon in a series of three, and you may be going, how in the world does this connect to the other sermons we've been in? You know, two weeks ago, Dave said, hey, we're going to do a three-part sermon series on what it looks like for us to be friends of God when our nation is being shaken. How do we stand in the gap on behalf of a shaking nation? And he looked at the story of Moses and how Moses interceded for the people of Israel, quite literally a nation that was being shaken. And then last week, Brandon got up here and he talked with us beautifully through the story of Esther, this incredibly courageous and bold woman who stood in the gap on behalf of her brothers and sisters as Jews who were in exile. And we see God work on their behalf. You know, this week, we don't necessarily see that a nation is on the line in this story. But guys, I think what I want us to see here is that just like Peter was being sifted, I believe that our nation right now, what's happening, what's been happening in our nation, it is not just a shaking, but it is a sifting. What's happening in the American church is not just a shaking, but it is a sifting. You see, Satan wants nothing more than to get Christ's followers all across our nation to begin to let go of their hope and their faith, their trust in King Jesus. You know, sometimes, maybe oftentimes, this life, it doesn't go the way we expect it to, or it doesn't go the way that we want it to. I mean, it wasn't 2020 just a case in point in that whole idea. I mean, how many of us had plans that we wanted to do, things that we wanted to happen that just didn't go the way that we wanted? And you know, I've spent the last few months watching things in our nation as what in the past has been a very smooth democratic process 
just watch as that has just kind of been shaking all of us the way that it has unfolded. And guys, I'll be honest, I've just been confused. I've been scratching my head as I've watched the way that Christians have dealt with this whole thing. I've been asking myself the question, like, what is happening right now that Christians in droves are falling prey to conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory? Like, what, what is the deal? What's happening there? I've had to ask myself the question, like, what is happening that could cause the name of Jesus to be connected to or co-opted by a mob of people acting in lawlessness, trying to overthrow a government by violence. How did Jesus' name make its way into that mix? What is happening under the surface in our nation? You know, guys, our faith in Jesus as the one and only source of hope, salvation, and justice is the essence of what it means to be followers of Jesus. And when we misplace that faith or we put that faith in anything else, it falls apart in the sieve of Satan as he tries to sift us. You see, a misplaced faith is really no faith at all. Faith in anything else to bring us salvation, to bring us hope, to bring justice will crumble when sifted by the enemy. You know, one of the really common conspiracy theories that has just been rampant in our nation for the last month, and it has affected countless followers of Jesus, is this the whole QAnon conspiracy. I don't know if you've kept up on that. Don't get into a deep dive on anything. It was just this, yeah, don't, don't go there if you don't know what it is. But, but it's just been this, this dark hole of deceit and deception that many people have fallen prey to. You know, it was really interesting. I don't know where you were on Wednesday during the inauguration. I remember watching it, and afterwards I read some articles because— you know, one of the things that some conspir- uh, QAnon conspiracy adherents believed was that in the middle of the inauguration, Trump was going to be this, like, Messiah figure who was going to come and round up all the people who've been doing evil. And I mean, it was just this kind of—and they believed it to the core of their being. And some of you watching this, you, you may have—you've you've been watching, you've been wondering, like, could this possibly be true? And I read an article about what the life uh, of a QAnon adherent was like the day after the election— and I was shocked, you know, as I apparently on the message boards, the QAnon message boards on, on Wednesday, they were just going crazy. And, and one QAnon adherent said this as they were watching it. They said, if nothing happens in this inauguration, I will no longer believe in anything. Just think about that. You see, misplaced faith is no faith at all. When it makes its way into the sieve, it gets shaken out and there's nothing worth keeping on top anymore. Yes, and I'm not just pointing fingers at certain parts of our country. You know, I had another friend last year that, you know, she was disappointed by the way her denomination handled the pandemic. And at one point in a conversation, she said, yeah, I mean, she was really distraught. She said, I, I might lose my faith over the way our denomination has handled this thing. And I'm going, wait, what is our faith in? You see, guys, faith in any institution Faith in any, in any any plan, any theory, faith in any particular leader, even a Christian leader outside of Jesus himself, faith in any of those things begin to crumble when Satan starts to sift us. And there's nothing left worth keeping on top of the sieve when that happens. And, and I'm again, I'm not... I'm not pointing fingers at one side or the other, guys. I I really think as as followers of Jesus, we've got to start to ask ourselves the questions of what are what is the thing? Who is it we are putting our faith in? You know, because the reality is faith in any particular political leader, faith in any particular political party, faith in any government system or economic plan, faith in any of these things will crumble. You know, I I think, and I struggle to know how to talk about this, just to be quite honest, because I'm sometimes afraid that people are going to think I'm like, 
you know, non-patriotic or anti-American. I'm not at all. Like, I'm so grateful to live in the nation we live in. We are so blessed. But the simple truth is, is that I really believe that for years now, many American Christians have been putting a little bit too much faith in the power of this democracy. We've put a little too much faith in the security of this nation and its ability to keep us safe and to keep us comfortable. And the moment that thing begins to get shaken, we see what's left in the sieve on the other side. I believe that Satan has been sifting us. He's sifting us. Guys, the reality is nations have risen and fallen over the years. Every nation rises, every empire rises, and it falls, but the name of Jesus has stood secure. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. His name and his kingdom alone is the name and the kingdom that will stand into all eternity, and the only one worth putting all of our trust in, all of our hope in, and believing with certainty that what he has said will come to pass. And if we don't do that, man, when things like 2020 happen, when, when things like unrest happens, that man, we get shaken and, and the misplaced faith begins to be get revealed for what it is. And guys, if Satan can sift our faith, then he has us. He's got us. Yeah, but I think there are some key things that we can learn from this little moment in Jesus' life with Simon Peter. I think there's kind of three things that I think we learn taken away from it, and they're real simple. The first one is this, I think, I think Jesus is giving us a framework for understanding hardship, understanding suffering in this life before he comes back in glory. He's given us a framework for it. You know, there's multiple places where Jesus will do something like this, where he will, he, will, he will say something about the suffering or hardship that's coming and he doesn't do anything to relieve us from it. He does this a lot of times. You know, he's like, hey, in this world you have trouble. You know, he says, take up your cross and follow me. And then there's one place that is so startling that just got my attention this week when I read it. You know, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus is talking to a particular little church in, in the ancient city of Smyrna. Listen to these words that Jesus says to this little church in Smyrna. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, to sift you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Listen to his instruction for them, his encouragement for them. He says, be faithful. Hold on to your faith. Trust in me. Trust in me. Even to the point of death. And I will give you life as a victor's crown. I will give you the crown of life. I, I don't know how you feel, but can you imagine if Jesus were to walk into the studio and stand in front of the camera and go, hey, Ethos Church, I need you to hear something. Some of you are about to suffer. Some of you are going to be persecuted. Some of you are going to be put into jail. And some of you are even going to suffer up to the point of death. Be faithful. Would we trust him? Would we believe him? When he says, man, if you endure it, I've got a crown of life for you. Glory beyond what you could possibly imagine. I've got it for you. Be filled with joy right now, even in the face of it. Would we trust him? Yes, I'm not saying that's what Jesus is saying to us right now. It's not. It's what he said to the church in Smyrna. But it's very clear. Jesus, he laid it out for them, and his instruction was, man, have faith in the face of it. Trust me in the face of it. I know right now in our church family, there's a lot of people that are dealing with pain, dealing with suffering. I know some of you have lost loved ones this year. Some of you are watching loved ones as they hang on to life by a thread. Some of you 
Some of you have lost jobs, you've been economically hit. Some of you have been dealing with the weight of mental illness, whether it's depression, isolation, loneliness, bipolar. Some of you have struggled with suicidal ideation. Some of you have had vices and addictions spring back up in your life this year. And guys, I think what I'm trying to help us see here is that Jesus, he's gonna be right there in it with us, which is the next thing we're gonna say. But man, at first he's gonna call all of us. He's gonna say, hey, will we pray for the body of Christ to be strengthened in faith in the midst of these hard times? Will we join him in praying? He's praying for us right now. Will we join him in praying that the faith of the body of Jesus will be strengthened? So the first thing he's given us is a framework to understanding hardship, suffering. I think the second thing he's gonna do is he's gonna show us where he is in the suffering. You know, I think this is so interesting when you look at Peter's sifting. Peter didn't actually really suffer that much. I mean, he, 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 he was shaken in his faith and his faith was deeply shaken, but it wasn't because of suffering, he, he denied. It's like if you ask the question, who really suffered because of Peter's sifting? I think the answer you'll find is that it's actually Jesus who suffered because of Peter's sifting. Jesus was the one that was betrayed. Jesus was the one that was left alone in the face of false accusation. Jesus is the one who was beaten, spit upon, whipped, hung on a cross, hanging in agony, absolutely alone, and suffering death. That was Jesus. You see, when we're in the middle of being sifted, when we're in the middle of hardship and pain, Jesus is right in it with us. Guys, we don't serve a God who sits in the clouds at a distance while we go through hard things. We don't serve a ruler who sits in an ivory tower while we wallow in the streets. No, we serve a God who has entered first and foremost into the suffering and he's experienced all that we're experiencing. He has lost loved ones. He's felt the pain of sickness and death. He has been betrayed. He has felt alone. He has felt all of these things and he's in it with us. You see, Jesus prays for our faith, but he also enters right into the pain with us because he knows how we feel. And now he stands in the presence of God. I mean, Hebrews chapter four, Hebrews chapter nine just tells us he stands before God, interceding, praying for us as one who has been through it before us. So we see this framework. How do we, how do we understand hardship, sifting, pain? We see this picture of where is Jesus in the middle of it? And the last thing I want us to see is Jesus gives us a glimpse of what's on the other side. He gives us a glimpse of what's on the other side. Look at what he says to Peter. He says, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. You know, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Listen to this. He says, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. As he, he knew exactly what Peter was heading for. He knew that Peter was going to deny him, that Peter was going to betray him. And yet he says, man, on the other side of this thing, Peter, I've got something for you. Guys, right now, I know some of you Maybe you're sitting there and you're realizing you've had some misplaced faith and you feel the sifting. Maybe your trust has been in something that couldn't hold up in the face of the sifting. Maybe some of you are watching the way Christians are acting this year and you've been going, man, do I really believe this? Is that really who I am? And you're struggling to keep your faith in Jesus because of the way other Christians are acting. Uh, maybe some of you are, are just close to letting go of your faith. You've been sifted and you're like, I don't know how much longer I can hold on. I don't know how much I can keep believing. Some of you feel like you have failed. You've done the thing that you said you'd never do. You've gone back to the addiction you didn't want to go back to. You've, 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 gone, you've crossed that line in your heart where you're going, I don't think I believe it anymore. And what the enemy's going to try to tell you is that it's over for you. And guys, this is not what Jesus says. <laughs> Jesus says, hey, when you turn back, 
Do you hear that? Do you hear the invitation? He says, when you turn back. Oh, guys, this is such a beautiful picture of the grace and the love of Jesus. He knew Peter was going to betray him. He knew Peter was going to fail. And if you feel like you failed, Jesus is not done with you. He says, when you turn back, <laughs> strengthen your brothers. I love this. He's got a promise and an invitation on the other side of it. He's going, hey, when you come back, you're going to come back. I've got you. But he doesn't just give us a promise. He says, hey, you've also got purpose. When you come back, strengthen those who are now going through what you went through. When you come back, I've got more for you than you ever could have had before the sifting came. I've been doing something in you. I'm going to work through you to strengthen your brothers and sisters. When you come back, strengthen my family. Strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your sisters. I love this. Jesus gives a framework for suffering. He shows us he's right in the middle of it. And guys, he shows us what's on the other side of it. Just like Jesus went through suffering and came out on the other side to strengthen his followers, he invites Peter to go through the sifting and come out on the other side. And guys, he's looking at us and he's going, hey, walk through the sifting, keep your eyes on me. And when you come out on the other side, let's strengthen the body of Jesus and hold up his name above every other name. This is who we are. And this is what he's called us to. Guys, in just a few minutes after we worship a little bit, you're gonna take the cup and the bread and we're gonna participate in that same meal that Jesus was celebrating. And some of you may be feeling, man, you've been being sifted. Let's, let's talk about it. Talk about it over the bread and the cup, the blood and the body. Talk about it. Pray with one another. Strengthen one another. Let me pray for you. And then we're gonna enter into a time of worship together. Lord, I love you. Thank you for showing us the way. Thank you for being the one to go first into suffering to come out on the other side and to strengthen us so that we can keep coming with you. Lord, you are steadfast. You are a rock. You are steady. You are good. Lord, would you anchor us in you and would you help us to strengthen one another as we continue to journey with you. In the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks. Amen. I love you, Ethos. Let's spend some time worshiping together.